Miracy. So research shows by the time you're about 35 years old, more or less, 90 to 95% of your brain becomes subconscious. What does that mean? It's on autopilot. It's programming. Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. My name is Melinda Cohen, and I run a business called The Coaches Console. The Coaches Console has supported more than 50,000 entrepreneurs in creating their own profitable coaching businesses. In this episode, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Eugene Choi. He firmly believes that activating the powerful executive part of the brain maximizes results, not just in business leaders, but in humanity as a whole. Together, we'll talk about how to neurohack your brain, which may sound very scientific and hard to grasp. And you might even be wondering if it has anything to do with coaching. But Eugene has a way of explaining complex concepts so that they're easy to understand. Our talk about the brain and its superpowers can help you and your clients produce significant professional and personal growth. Eugene is a certified transformational mindset coach and a board-certified clinical pharmacist. He's on a mission to help talented, heart-driven leaders operate at their highest levels of performance, intelligence, and communication. For a period of time, he also worked as an ACES coach at Miracy. He uses neuroscience and technology to help leaders activate peak performance to boost their critical thinking, decision-making, and revenue generation skills so they can scale their businesses to generate more revenue and impact. Also, he's going to share four practical steps all of us can do right now to start getting the results we want. So welcome, Eugene. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am excited to talk about this, and I'm so happy to have you on the show for this episode and this discussion. I think our listeners will walk away with a deeper awareness of the brain and its superpowers. Now, I geek out on neuroscience and understanding more about how the brain works. But before we dive into the topic, can you share why you went from being a certified clinical pharmacist by trade to becoming a certified transformational coach? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, long story short, I followed the typical, what I call the Asian American dream. I know people can't see me. I'm an Asian American. And the thing to think about is, you know, we go into these healthcare careers for stability, predictability, because our parents' generation as immigrants came in and suffered, basically. They had to figure a lot of stuff out. And so I followed that healthcare career, very quickly realized it's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I ended up doing some filmmaking for a little bit. And when I went into filmmaking, had a lot of success with it in terms of exposure, had a lot of short films that went viral and all that good stuff. And I quickly realized I didn't like filmmaking. To give you an example, one project I worked on got 23 million views online, but it took me seven months to edit the film. So I realized how arduous the process is. And that's when I asked myself the question of, well, why did I do this to begin with? And I realized it was because of storytelling. If you listen to any kind of story, it's about a main character that undergoes this amazing, amazing internal transformation at the end of the film or the story. And it started with this question of, what can we do to make that happen in real life? And that's when I discovered neuroscience. My healthcare background came really handy here, right? Reading a lot yeah. of articles and medical journals about how the brain works, how it's wired, how to get more skills to wire it to perform better. 
And that's kind of how it came full circle. And here I am today teaching people how to use neuroscience to improve their performance, get their energy back, be able to focus better, and all of these amazing things that this part of your brain is capable of. It's so often in life when we're doing one thing and then we do the next thing and then the next thing, and they seem like they don't have anything to do with each other. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's the through line. Now I see how all of this was working towards a common purpose. So fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Now you say that it turns out our brain operates either in one of two states. Could you tell us what you mean by that, Eugene? Like what are those two states? Yes, absolutely. So this was the big aha moment for me after pouring through all of this research was, wait, hold on. Your brain really just operates in one of two states. It's what I call either a survival state or an executive state. The survival state is the part of your brain that will turn on when your life's in danger. So imagine a tiger in front of you about to eat you. Your brain goes into this survival state where it's in an operating mode of reacting without thinking. So that's the most important thing to pay attention to is you're literally not thinking, you're just reacting. And the executive state is a part of your brain that has access to a lot of your superpowers is what I call them, right? Your critical thinking skills, your problem solving skills, your empathy, the ability to connect with other people, which can cause a lot of leadership issues when they're in survival because their empathy is actually turned off. And all of these amazing capabilities come from this one part of your brain called your prefrontal cortex behind your forehead. And that's what activates the executive state. Okay, so that is fascinating. Now, in one of your published articles, you wrote research that has shown that we live in the survival state for about 70% of our adult life. Did I read that right? I mean, that's a lot of time. I would say it's at least 70%. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And then if those fight, flight, freeze responses can be found in the part of the brain that deals with survival, what emotions are connected to that? Yes. So you're bringing up a very important thing, which is that fight, flight, freeze response, right? So in a life-threatening scenario, it's very straightforward. You'll pick up a weapon to fight, you'll run for your life in flight, or you'll play dead and freeze, right? Opossums are famous for doing that. So that's the key thing that you're bringing up is that majority of the time, because we're feeling things like stress, anxiety, frustration, it actually triggers this survival state, even though your physical life is not in danger, which is why it's for about 70% of our adult life, we're in that survival state because of emotions that don't feel good, like stress, anxiety, frustration, overwhelm. Ah, so it may not be that, like you were describing the lions chasing you, your life's in danger. It may not be that dramatic kind of life in danger, but the emotional things like the stresses or anxieties or frustrations, that keeps us in that survival state as well. Exactly. Because your brain interprets it as a threat, mainly because it just doesn't feel good. So that's why even though you're not in physical danger where you're about to be murdered, your brain still triggers that survival state because of these emotions that we don't like feeling. And the more you think about it, you realize how true that is because whether it's your own thinking every day, the types of thoughts that we don't like, such as you know the 70,000 thoughts that we think per day, which research shows, and majority of those thoughts are the same thoughts every day. And a majority of those thoughts are some form of negative thought about yourself. So we try to survive from those thoughts. We try to survive from media and our environment, right? You hear about shootings, the pandemic, all of these things that trigger fear, and it will just turn on the survival state because it's one or the other. You're either in survival or you're in the executive state. Wow. And then so the executive state, like what emotions are connected to the executive state? Yeah. The types of emotions that are in the executive state are 
in a nutshell, the things that feel really amazing. Joy, gratitude, happiness, appreciation. Now, here's an interesting question. When you are experiencing some of those heavier emotions, some of the ones that you mentioned earlier, is it possible if you're acknowledging them, you're transparent about them, you're not resisting them, but you're using tools to move through them, now I don't know that you're in a reactionary mode, like you're intentionally feeling those feelings fully. Does that keep you in survival mode or does that kick you into executive mode? That's a really important point you're bringing up is to allow yourself to feel the feeling that you're feeling and acknowledging it, being transparent, being honest with yourself is literally the thing that creates the space for you to be able to process it rather than survive from it. So that's, I just want to repeat that distinction because I'm taking my own notes on this. I told you I geek out on this topic. I love it. And so feeling the feelings fully creates the space to process it rather than react to it. Correct. The way I like to explain this in a way that helps really connect the dots for people is the way to think about it is when you're feeling an emotion that causes survival, the only reason you're feeling that feeling, it actually has to do with a memory that you have. So believe it or not, our emotions, the function of our emotions is for memory purposes. So the way I like to illustrate it is think about moments in your life where there's higher emotional intensity, right? The first date you've been on, the first time you have to give a public speech, the higher the emotional intensity, the more details you remember, right? So what happens is, especially around whether it's a trauma or something tough that we've been through, these memories get stored in our brain and your brain spends the rest of its life trying to protect you from similar scenarios. So what's happening when you're feeling this feeling the way I like to illustrate it is there's a memory trying to communicate something with you. It's asking your current self for help, if that makes sense. So that, that's what's important. But what our current self does in a survival state, we react to the feeling as if it's a burden, as if it's something we don't want around. We literally fight, flight, freeze from our emotions. So what does fight look like? Perfectionism. It looks like working too hard to the point of burnout to try to make this feeling go away. Flight is procrastination avoiding the thing, avoiding the feeling. Some people go as far to numb themselves, right? Some people overindulge themselves in things like alcohol, sex, drugs as a numbing mechanism to get rid of the feeling. Other people just shut down in freeze mode. And what we're doing to ourselves when we're feeling these feelings, it's like you're turning your back on yourself when there's this part of yourself asking you for help to process this emotion. And by not processing it, it's what keeps the feeling there and it's not going away. Okay. I love that. The fight perfectionism, flight, procrastination, freeze, overwhelm. And so we may not even realize we're in survival mode, but we all know when we're in perfectionism mode, we may not want to admit it, but we know it. Or procrastination mode. Again, we may not want to admit it. We might justify it, but really we know. Or that overwhelm, that freeze mode, right? Like where everything's heavy and overwhelm and we just don't do anything. And so we can identify those indicators. And then it's like, wait a minute, I'm in survival mode. And then you said the key is to be conscious of it, feel it fully, and that creates the space to process it. Correct. It's all about, it just starts with awareness. If you just think about fight, flight, freeze, and you just take a moment to notice, oh my goodness, how much of that is around us, whether it's in ourselves or people around us, right? You see someone get cut off on the road and they've flip their lid and they're trying to cut that person back off. It's like, whoop, there's a fight response, right? Or if we're procrastinating up, oh, there's a flight response. And the key here is it's all reactive. It's reactions without 
thinking. And the more we're able to see this, it's what gives you the power to change it because awareness is the key first step. Because for example, if you have a piece of broccoli stuck in your teeth, how do you have the power to remove it until it comes into your awareness, whether someone points it out to you or you see it in the mirror? Right. Which is why coaching is so important because a lot of times we can't do it ourselves. And I love that you call them the superpowers. We also have, like, I have perfect Portia, Oliver Overwhelm, because you're right, these patterns continue to show up. And I refer to them as villains so that they can bring awareness to that and then intentionally reach for the superpowers. Now, you briefly mentioned it earlier, but I want to ask you again, what are the brain's superpowers? Can you share that with us again? Yeah. So there's a lot of functions. The list goes on, right? So it's things like our critical thinking skills, our problem-solving skills, our empathy, our creativity, our intuition. And there's so many of these kinds of things that we're able to do from our executive brain. Another thing being your executive function, which is just a fancy way of saying the skill to make good decisions. That part comes from your executive brain as well. Nice. Now, before we go deeper, let's start by explaining what neurohacking is. Can you explain that for everybody listening in? Yes. The way I like to explain it is kind of like you said earlier, where sometimes it's hard to see the label from inside the jar. And the reason is with our patterns, our negative thinking patterns, our limiting beliefs and things like that, it's actually on autopilot. So research shows by the time you're about 35 years old, more or less, 90 to 95% of your brain becomes subconscious. What does that mean? It's on autopilot. It's programming. Just like you can program a computer to do the same things every day, your brain gets programmed because of your unique personal life experiences to think the same types of thoughts per day, think the same types of beliefs, right? Believe the same types of beliefs every day. And this is kind of where neurohacking comes in is where you're able to look at the programming. It starts with the awareness building, like we mentioned earlier. And we take a look at it and explore it in a way where you start to see what's actually true and what's not true. And the moment you see certain things that you believed weren't true, you can't unsee that. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when you thought the bad guy was the bad guy in the movie and it turned out to be the good guy. Now you can't see that person the same ever again. So you have the same type of experience when you're doing neurohacking where beliefs that you thought were true, you finally see it's not true. And boom, if I had a brain scan to your head, you would watch it rewire itself in that moment. And that's what neurohacking is. Wow. It's just so cool. I mean, I just, I love this stuff. It's so amazing because when we can leverage this, we really become empowered to make change and not have to depend on our situations changing or the world changing or the pandemic ending or who knows what's going on in your life. And you can make those changes irregardless of your situation. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's coming off, but this is why I'm so excited about this. And you're bringing up something really poignant, which is the way I like to explain it is when you're in a survival state, imagine being in a dark forest and you hear a really scary noise, like a growl from a nasty, scary animal, and you don't know where it's coming from. Think about where your attention goes. Does it go outside of yourself or inside of yourself? It goes outside of yourself because you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, what's going on? Am I about to die? And the illusion is because most of the time we're in the survival state, even though your life's actually not in danger, that's why it screws you over because the illusion becomes, I'm feeling this feeling I don't like on the inside. It must be because of this experience that's happening on the outside that's causing this feeling on the inside, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what some people do is they spend their whole life trying to change things on the outside when this feeling to be addressed was inside to begin with, right? They're sitting there going, oh, maybe it's my business that's causing me frustration. Maybe I'll stop working on my business. They stop working on their business. Why am I still unhappy? Oh, maybe it's my relationship. I'll change the relationship. Why am I still unhappy? I'll buy everything money can buy. Maybe it's because I don't have enough stuff. 
And why am I still unhappy? It's because the focus, because the illusion is that the brain thinks the problem is coming from the outside when the feeling was coming from the inside, simply because that's just how survival state works. Right. Right? Wow. So it's this process of this inner journey of exploring what's going on inside of me. And that's when you realize, oh my goodness, these meanings, these beliefs, these perspectives inside of me was the very reason why I'm having these feelings. And I don't like to just say this at a vague level. Like I like to give concrete examples. One clear example being like, and I'll share my own story. My daughter would get at three years old, you know, as a three-year-old does, they don't listen a lot of times, right? So I used to get very upset at her and I would yell at her and scream at her. And as I started going into this work, I'm like, hold on. If it's a feeling that doesn't feel good, I'm surviving from it. If I'm angry, what am I surviving from? And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, I'm very sensitive about being a bad father because I had a very rough relationship with my father to the point where I had a lot of anger, resentment. I went on this very selfish crusade saying, I'm never going to be a bad dad like my dad. So what happens is this thing on the outside that's happening, which is my daughter's not listening to me. My brain inside of me is going, hey, look, your daughter's not listening to you. You're being a bad father just like your dad. And then now I'm surviving by fighting, right? Anger is a fight response. I'm yelling, I'm screaming. And all I'm doing is scaring the poor girl. And the very thing I want with her is not happening, which is connection. Because remember, by the way, empathy is turned off when you're in survival. So here I am with my daughter. I can't connect with her because I'm upset. And this is the same type of problem you see leaders across the globe, where if they just learn these simple skills, they'll change their team. So if you, as the coach, go into your conversation in a survival state, your client will know it without you even having to tell them. Okay. I love that because I've been coaching coaches for 17 years. And especially when we teach enrollment conversations, that's where I see it come up a lot. It also comes up in the coaching conversation as well, but especially in the enrollment conversations, because so many coaches are triggered by the topic of money in all ways, shapes, and sizes and forms. And so they go into survival mode, right? Yes. And so in the, when I'm teaching this, I'm like, look, we've got to get you right about money because whoever's sitting across from you, they're going to mirror back to you, whatever your triggers are. It's just, it's how it works. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you've ever been the end target of a sales conversation where the person's clearly desperate and just needing money from you, we all know what that feels like because your mirror neurons are picking up on it. And you're absolutely right. I have a whole thing with neuroscience of sales. It really is mastering your own state first, because if you're sitting there going, how am I going to make this money? How am I going to make this money? It's going to trigger your survival state. You can't think. And you're right. Money has a tendency to trigger survival state because guess what? Money is the modern day survival. It puts food on the table, puts a roof over your head, pays your mortgage. So of course, when money gets brought up, it's just going to trigger survival in so many different ways, both in you and the prospect. Now, Eugene, you mentioned your four steps. Can you tell us what those four steps are? Yes. So these four steps that we're bringing up, it's a short-term solution is the way to view it, right? Short-term meaning when you're in the moment, you get aware of what's happening. Here are some tools, tips that you can do to try to snap yourself back into executive state. So the first step is to label your emotions, whether it's out loud or in your head, right? I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling nervous. The reason for this is they did a study where out in UCLA in California, where they would have people tied up to the brain scans, they would show these participants pictures of people's faces with survival emotions on them, right? Anxiety, fear, frustration, uh, anger. And as soon as they showed the emotion, guess what? The amygdala, which is where the survival brain exists, 
just lit up. It started turning on, immediately activating. So it's like, oh, okay, survival stays turning on when you see this picture and you know, you're know you tying in mirror neurons and all that good stuff, which is why they're able to do that. But what was interesting was the researchers would ask the participant, hey, can you tell me what emotion you're seeing in this picture? And it's really straightforward. So they're like, yeah, that's easy. That's anger. That's frustration. That's fear. As soon as they name that emotion, guess what happens? The survival brain turned off, executive brain turned on. So why this is fascinating is because think about this for a second. To label something, doesn't it require you to think? And when you're in survival, you cannot think. So if you make it a daily habit to label your emotions, you're literally calling on your executive brain to turn on, right? I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling scared. And the other nuance to think about, I learned this from a clinical psychology friend of mine named Nick Wignall, and he talks to me about how important it is to pay attention to how you describe the feeling too. For example, there's a big difference between I'm feeling sad and I am sad. For you to say I am sad is presuming that that is your identity. The emotion is your identity. So you are going to stay stuck in survival if that's what you believe is that you are sadness. If that's your identity, you're going to stay stuck there. So when you're saying, I feel sad, you're understanding the fact that feelings come and go. We know this is true, right? Sometimes we feel sad. Sometimes we feel happy. Feelings come and go. So the moment you acknowledge that, you're able to let go of the emotion that's keeping you in survival for that moment so that you can activate your executive state to be able to find the solutions, the opportunities that you need to find. And so that was the first step, label emotions. What's the second step? Second step is the one that's a little bit more cliche, which is deep breathing. You take deep breaths. There's two types of breathing that I recommend. One is called box breathing, which is you inhale for five seconds, hold it for five seconds, and exhale for five seconds. And the second type of breathing is you inhale. Once you're done inhaling, you do another inhale, and then you slowly exhale. Just let it out nice and slow. And this was introduced by a fellow named Andrew Huberman. He's a neuroscientist out in Stanford, where he was able to show someone else's project that showed live scans of the body. And it shows your body going into its executive state, which is when it's relaxing. And you would see it in live time when you're breathing like that. That's because your body actually has a survival state and an executive state as well, right? Think about in front, if you're in front of a tiger that's about to eat you, there's a lot of changes happening in your body, right? Heart's beating faster, breathing's happening more rapidly, blood's going away from your digestive system, which by the way, is why a lot of people who are stressed out have digestion issues, right? Because if your body thinks it's about to die, it's not a time to be processing food. So you're signaling your body's executive state to turn on when you're taking these deep breaths because below your lungs, you have something called your parasympathetic nerves. That's the nerves that help your body relax and go into its executive state where it feels safe. Because if you don't feel safe, you're not consciously taking deep breaths. You're rapidly breathing if you think you're about to die. So when you're taking a conscious deep breath, which is why people say this all the time, what you're literally doing is you're tickling the nerves at the bottom of your lungs to turn on your body's executive state, which therefore turns on your brain's executive state. Wow. And so step number three is? Step number three is paying attention to nonverbals. So if you're the coach, when you look at your client, you can tell from their nonverbals what state they are in, right? We hear that statistic that 93% of communication is nonverbal. So when you look at a person's facial expression or their body language, right? If their eyes are scrunched up with skepticism or anger, you can tell that they're not in a place where they're ready to listen to what you have to say. They want to feel connected to you first, right? So 
that's the thing to pay attention to more because you know how many times as a leader or as a coach do you have your client or your employee running in and you can clearly like if if you see it they're in their survival state going oh my god there's this problem there's that problem there's this problem there's that problem you know they're not thinking so it's great to help them improve their thinking skills by just paying attention to nonverbal if they're in survival connect and redirect right where it's just like all right let's just take a moment i've got your back here i want you to know i'm on your side and I'm, I'm in total support of you. And let's have a conversation first, because I know there's a lot of things happening now. Let's organize this together, figure out the best solution, figure out the best plan so that we can make sure we don't miss anything. Because it's often in that survival, we rush, we do things without thinking, we often miss a lot of important steps, right? And that's when projects fail. Yeah. Or make mistakes and then have to redo exactly. it. Yeah. Exactly. And then take us through the final step. What's step four? The last step is paying attention to the way people speak, right? The question I like to pose is whoever's in front of you, are they curious right now or are they concerned? So the types of examples I like to give is also to be aware of, there are certain ways that you can speak or other people speak that can trigger survival, that can trigger defensiveness, right? Such as accusational questions. Did you do this? It triggers defensiveness. Or questions that start with why. Like, why did you do things this way? How many times do leaders ask their employees that, right? Why this? Why that? Another type of tone is when you're making absolute statements. You always do this. You never do that. And if anyone's ever been in a relationship, (laughs) I'm sure you've heard that question once or twice, right? So that tends to trigger defensiveness. So we want to make sure we're coming from a place of curiosity. Curiosity is really important. So when a person's in front of you and they're asking you questions out of curiosity, you can tell versus the time they're asking you questions out of concern or making statements out of concern. And in entrepreneurs, you know, which is my group of people that I coach, I've heard many times where they come up and say, what do I need to say here to get the sale? And you know, they're coming from a place of concern and they're asking the wrong question because what they're really asking is how do I avoid shame, blame, rejection, embarrassment? Give me the one thing I need to say so that I can avoid all of these feelings I don't want to feel when the better question to ask in curiosity is, well, can you tell me a little bit about your target market? What are they up at night worried about? What is the thing that if we can help them solve, it would mean the world for them? So is it curiosity or is it concern? You're paying attention to what spirit this person in front of you has, right? What kind of tone or in yourself too, if you're finding yourself concerned about something, guess what? You're entering into survival. I love that distinction. Now, can you neurohack your brain's superpowers like on a moment to moment basis? Right. So the short term is what we just mentioned. The neurohacking is what's more of the long term because why it's long term is because we have a lot of networks in our brain, like we said earlier, that operates automatically because it's been conditioned that way. So when you're doing something long term, it takes some work to be able to explore what your reality looks like. Everyone has a different reality. And the moment you look at your reality, the key here is, are you willing to be wrong about certain things that you feel is real? And this is where neurohacking comes in is you want to look at these long-standing programming that we have in our brain where for most of our life, we believe certain things. And are you willing to be challenged on that? And that's where you know it's important to have someone that's equipped to do this, whether it's a coach or someone who's more knowledgeable with how the brain works and things like that, it's, it's really helpful where you get outside support because it's hard to see things from inside the jar when what feels real for you feels so real. Does that make sense? 
Oh yeah, totally. And I just, I want you to repeat it again. So we make sure that our listeners really got it until you're willing to be wrong about everything that you know, how did the rest of it go? Until you're willing to be wrong about everything you know, nothing will ever change. Mm, That's so powerful. And being a coach, I know the power of this. Loving this topic of neuroscience. I certainly don't know as much about it as you do, but I have loved this conversation. And I'm sure we will have many more. Now, I just want to summarize because we have talked about a lot today. So let's just summarize some of the things that we've covered. You shared with us that really our brain operates in two stages. We're either in that survival mode where we're experiencing that flight, fight, and freeze mode where we've got the procrastination, perfectionism, and overwhelm happening, or we're operating in the executive stage where we can access what you call our superpowers, right? The critical thinking, the problem solving, empathy, intuition, creativity, all those things. And then the key that you shared with us is to feel them fully because that creates the space to process what's happening rather than just blindly reacting to it. And that that awareness is kind of the move to make to do things differently. And then you also shared your four steps with us, that quick in the moment, how can I address when I'm noticing either I'm in survival mode or my client is in survival mode. And those four steps included label the emotions, deep breathing, paying attention to the nonverbal cues, and also then the way people are speaking. And you defined neurohacking, which is that longer term process to really address the core beliefs, what's really going on by understanding the awareness and looking at the programming that's underlying everything and then identifying what's true and what's not true. And so the survival state is ingrained in our brains and easily triggered. But if we as coaches can help our clients to engage their brains consciously, they can learn how to identify when that fight and flight and freeze response is happening. And then they can creatively start problem solving and making good and different decisions and feeling empathy. And Eugene, do you have any parting words? Yeah. And this might sound mushy, but I 100% believe it. If you think about it, everything comes down to this relationship you have with yourself. Because guess what? When you're having these survival emotions of anxiety, frustration, anger, the feeling, remember, it has nothing to do with the experience that you're having right now. It has everything to do with the feeling that's coming from you. So way to think about it is it's a part of you asking you for help, right? Whether it's the five-year-old version of yourself that felt hurt because mom and dad did this, whether it's because of the teenage version of yourself that had an embarrassing moment there that felt that. That's all that's happening. There's a part of you that's hurting asking you, your current self, for help. But if you go into survival, if you go overwork to the point of burnout in fight, or you procrastinate or numb yourself in flight, or you shut down and you go and freeze, what you're literally doing is you're turning your back on yourself when a part of you is asking you for help. You would never do that to a client or a family member that's in distress asking you for your support. Yet, why do we do it to ourselves so often? It's because the illusion is when we're in survival, we think ourself is the enemy. When in fact, it's just a part of you asking you for help. So it's important when you're in that executive state is to listen. If you're feeling frustration, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling anxiety, is to listen. This is why it's so important to process that feeling. Give yourself the space so that you can help that 
version of yourself actually see what's true. And eventually they let go of this meaning of an experience that's not true, that's been stored as a memory in the brain. And you can let that go and neurologically rewire your brain so that, guess what? Imagine what it would be like to not get triggered by certain things anymore. That's what you have the capability of doing simply by developing this caring, loving, compassionate relationship with yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches. And also a big thank you to Dr. Eugene Choi for this amazing conversation. You can find out more about him at destinyhacks.co. That's destiny, D-E-S-T-I-N-Y, hacks, H-A-C-K-S, dot co, destinyhacks.co. Eugene, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute honor. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Miracy FM network, which also includes Course Lab and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Danny Eney is our executive producer. I wrote this episode with Mishi Lance, and Mishi assembled this episode. If you don't want to miss future episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you liked the show, please leave us a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. And if you have a question for Just Between Coaches, put the show title in the subject line and send it to podcasts at miracy.com. That's podcasts, plural, at miracy, M-I-R-A-S-E-E.com. Miracy. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy folk or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators. Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing 
is always possible. And it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud, we can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.